My name is Dave. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors of this church family called Cedar Mill Bible Church. And this morning, we're actually in week two of a series that we're going through in the life of Moses called Learning to Trust, Finding Deliverance. And today we pick up the story in Exodus chapter two. If you missed last week, go back and listen. Um, not because I'm saying my message was so great, but because, but because you wouldn't, you know, start the Harry Potter series in book three, would you? No, right? So, so pick up the story from last week. Today we're going to be in chapter two. And as we begin, we're going to discover today that all of a sudden, Moses is all grown up. Last week he was a baby and now he's an adult. Last week we learned about the brutal conditions of slavery that the Hebrew people are facing in Egypt. We learned that, that Pharaoh had ordered the extermination of all the Hebrew baby boys, that they were to be tossed into the Nile River at birth. But we also learned that Moses was saved, that, that he was delivered from death in the Nile and that he became the son of Pharaoh's own daughter. In fact, the last sentence from last week, the final words, read like this. She, that's Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And, and as we continue with this story, there is now this sense, this sneaking suspicion that God has drawn Moses out in order that he might draw his people out. That God is actually constructing a calling for Moses. And that's what I've named my message this morning, constructing a calling. How God wants to construct a calling in the lives of his children. Verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews, Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Friends, the story of Moses, grown-up Moses, begins with him watching some things, with him seeing some things, with him noticing the harsh and cruel treatment of his people. Now, let me ask a question. Is this, is this the first time that Moses has seen Egyptians mistreating Hebrews? Can't be, right? I mean, Moses, by the way, is 40 years old in this passage. We've gone from like baby Moses to 40-year Moses. We skipped a whole lot of decades. God is like, hey, I'm going to highlight some parts of Moses' life for you, the important parts. Some stuff happened between zero and 40 that I'm sure was great. They got lots of family photo albums on it, but it's not that big of a deal to God. But this moment is, Moses is 40 years old. He's been around the block. He's seen time and time again his people in oppression, and yet there's something about this day, this moment, this incident that stirs Moses up and he cannot ignore what is happening any longer. He must respond. Friends, here's where we'll begin today. I believe God is in the business of using people 
who notice. I believe God is in the business of calling people who see things that other people don't see, that other people don't want to see, that other people are conditioned and trained not to see. The Egyptian empire, by the way, very intentionally educated and trained its people to consider the working class and especially slaves to be subhuman In some ancient texts that we have, slaves were even considered to be like donkeys. So so there's injustice happening all over this society, all around these people, every every single day, and yet no one seems to see it. Why? Because they're told not to. Because they are taught that it's normal. Let me ask us this morning, friends, what does God want us to see? What does God want us to notice in our world? What does God want you to take notice of with your eyes and ears and mind happening in our world that does not please him? And what if, what if the things that you see that disturb you and unsettle you or maybe even anger you are the places where partnership with God might begin for you? What if instead of noticing something that does not seem right and avoiding it or pushing it out of your mind, you were to think on it and pray on it and ask God, show me what to do? You see, a calling begins when we begin to see that the things that God sees. A calling begins when we begin to see the things that God cares about, the things that God is not okay with in this world. If you want to do something for God, if you want a kingdom calling, if you want to be part of God's kingdom work in this world, then maybe your very first prayer is simply this. God, open my eyes. God, help me to see. Moses sees. He sees what's happening. He sees what's going on. And then Moses acts. Moses kills this Egyptian, and and here's another really important lesson for us to learn. When we sense a calling in our lives, we may be tempted to tackle God's plans in our strength. We may be tempted to do God's will in our ways, to go about the process in the way that seems right to us. But friends, notice here that even the oppressed Hebrew people know that Moses' strategy is flawed. That some random impulsive act of righteous anger will not actually do them any good. That it is not God's way. You're going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian, Moses? I mean, way to go. Way to make a difference, man. Way to stand up for us, buddy. Really helping us out a lot. And so now Moses flees. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. You see, Moses is loyalties, his allegiances have now been exposed to the king. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Friends, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Every kingdom calling comes with a Pharaoh. Every kingdom calling comes with a pharaoh. Every fight for justice in this world will meet resistance. 
Here's the truth. If you want to do God's work in this world, be ready for some moments ahead where all you want to do is run. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day in our country. It's a big day. It's an important day. And a lot of King's journey relates significantly to the story of Moses. The parallels are actually a bit uncanny. And so just listen to a few of the things that King said. Here's a few quotes for you. The ultimate measure of a man or a woman is not where... They stand in moments of comfort or convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. He said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. This is my favorite one. It's long, but listen. Courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Courage breeds creativity. Cowardice represses, represses fear and is mastered by it. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And finally, never, never be afraid to do what's right, especially if the well-being of a person or animal is at stake. Society's punishments are small compared to the ones we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. Friends, how many Jesus followers in our world today do we see walking away from a calling, running away from their calling, ignoring, ignoring a calling that God has for them because the price seems too high and the task seems too difficult? That's Moses in our story right now. He's overwhelmed. He, he runs to Midian. Why? Because it was just outside of the Egyptian empire, just outside of Pharaoh's reach. You can see it here on the map. Maybe you can. That's, there it is. You see how it worked the second time? He said he put a little more into it. You see, he's just across the border from the Egyptian empire. He's just out of Pharaoh's reach. But right away, we get this very clear sense that even though Moses is out of Pharaoh's reach, he is not out of God's reach. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Underline that. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Friends, we, we notice here that Moses is still seeing people through God's eyes. He's, he's still noticing injustice. He's still intolerant of abuse. And once again, he doesn't just stand by, he takes action. The flame of God's calling in his life might be diminished, but it is not dead. And here's how we know that, that God is not through with Moses, that God is still at work in his life. We can see it in this well. You think like, really, a well? Like what? Friends, well in the, wells in the ancient Hebrew tradition are like candlelit Italian restaurants in our day. 
Uh, they're like the most, most romantic place in the Bible. I asked my wife this week, kind of hoping for a good summer illustration. I'm like, what's the most romantic dinner? Like, where's the most romantic dinner I've ever taken you to? And she thought about it for a minute. Where she was standing in the kitchen, and I was like just waiting for this like, big revelation. And she's like, I can't think of one. <laughs> and then, and then, then she even like, like, you know, put like, you know, salt in the wound. And she said, red lobster? That's what she said. <laughs> red lobster? And I was thinking, oh, Lord, I need grace for this message. So I'm digging a well in my backyard. Luckily, it's Oregon. You only have to go this far down. So, Wells are these romantic places in the Torah, friend. This is where Abraham's servant met Rebekah. This is where Jacob meets Rachel. And now this is where Moses will meet his future wife. This is God saying, ah, I'm still doing something with Moses. Verse 18, when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. This is just good, like, father stuff right here, right? Like, this guy's a keeper, you know? The hero at the well guy, let's have him over. It's meet the parents time, right? Let's go. But I actually want you to pause for a second here and notice something that you probably missed. How do these women, they're, they're called girls in the passage, but I feel weird about saying girls in this culture, right? How do these girls describe Moses to their father? What do they call him? An Egyptian. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they say. I, I thought Moses was a, was a Hebrew. I thought Moses had come to grips with his identity, that he, he had shifted loyalties. As it turns out, now here in Midian, Moses still seems to be identifying as an Egyptian. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Friends, the fact that Moses identifies as an Egyptian, and then names his son Gershom is very significant. It's highlighted in this story for a reason. First of all, all of you parents out there know this is true. When you name your kid, you're real careful. The parents in the room, they remember this process. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, like, there's, there's endless conversations and ideas, and then there are these questions, right? Does it rhyme with anything bad? Does it remind me of some dorky kid I couldn't stand in high school? Does it mean something affirming and powerful and significant? Can it be abbreviated into some nickname? Do I like that nickname? And does that nickname rhyme with anything bad? These are the kind of conversations parents have when naming their children, right? Here's the point. No one names their kid, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land, unless they are still very deeply struggling with who they are and what their calling is. If you didn't catch it yet, at this point of the story, Moses is still confused. He does not know who he is. He does not know what to do. He doesn't understand what God wants him to do with his life. I am a foreigner in a foreign land. I didn't fit in Pharaoh's house. I didn't really fit in with my own Hebrew people. I don't belong there. I don't really belong here. So Gershom it is. I mean, does anyone else feel bad for Moses' kid right now? like taking out your own issues on your children as if that ever happens. 
Verse 23, during that long period, during that long period, don't miss this, friends. During that long period, those four words are 40 more years of Moses' life. 40 years where he's still working out who he is and where his life has gone. 40 years working out, I have become a foreigner in a, 40, in a foreign land. 40 years in Midian. This was no two-month vacation for him. 40 years in Midian. And do you know what Midian is? Midian, for Moses, is obscurity. You see, in Egypt, Moses was somebody, but now he's gone from prince to peasant. He's gone from the palace to the sheep pasture. In Egypt, Moses had grand visions of freeing his people from slavery, but now in Midian, he has to let all of that go. He has to let all of the dreams and all of the ideas and all of the ambitions he had for his life go. But here's the good news. Obscurity is a place where God does some of his best work. Obscurity is that place where God is at work in you, but it doesn't feel like God's at work in you. Obscurity is that place where God is at work in you, but you feel like God's forgotten you. Friends, some of, some of God's clearest callings are cultivated in obscurity. I speak that to you today because some of you here feel like you're in obscurity. You feel like no one sees you. No one knows you. You don't know who you are. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have a calling. You don't even see a calling on the horizon. You wonder if God even cares about you anymore. God, some of God's clearest callings are cultivated in obscurity. Ruth Haley Barton in her wonderful uh, leadership book from the life of Moses says this. Moses remained in a non-public existence for a long time. It was as if in some deep and fundamental way, he just let go. He let go of his dreams of fixing anything, helping anyone, or even living among his people. Instead, he received what was given. He was offered a home in Midian, and so he settled there. He was given a wife, and so he took her as his own. He fathered his son, and it became a touchstone in his life, an opportunity to name something about himself with more courage and realism than ever before. Some of God's clearest callings are cultivated in obscurity. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You see, this is the turning point of the story, friends. Things have been going down, 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 and now things are going to start to turn and go up, 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 and here's why, because God finally is getting involved. Up to this point in the story, God hasn't really been around. He had a short cameo role back in chapter one when he hooked up Sephora and Pua with families, but he's kind of been in the background. He's kind of been like not heard from, but then all of a sudden, this is where he shows up. Is it any accident that God shows up on the heels of Moses' great confession about himself. 
when he's finally willing to admit the deeper realities happening in his soul. You see, now that God has done some work in Moses, he'll do some things through Moses. Chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And this is such an amazing moment in scripture. I could probably preach an entire sermon on this passage. And the scene from Prince of Egypt is phenomenal. So I am not going to try to compete with Steven Spielberg. But I do think we should ask this question. Why fire? Why fire? Why does God show up as this burning bush? I mean, do you know how often God appears in the Bible as fire? It's just kind of a, it's kind of a pattern. It's, it's kind of over and over again. He comes down on Mount Sinai as fire. He's leading the children through, of Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of fire. At, on, the, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and rests on the people of God through tongues of fire. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that our God is a consuming fire. And the question is, why? Why? Why fire? Well, one thought is that there are a lot of substances in this world that can be manipulated by us. Water can be manipulated. You can put your hand in water and you can move it around. Clay can be shaped by the one who touches it. But you put your hand in fire and it's not the fire that will be shaped. It's your hand that will be shaped. That fire will burn you, melt you, consume you because there's something unyielding about fire. There's something uncontrollable about fire. There's something mysterious about fire, which is why we love to sit around campfires and and stare at the flames for hours. You see, one of the things I believe God wants Moses to understand is that Moses' calling begins where his need for control ends. You see, this is not a God who will be manipulated into doing what Moses wants, Moses' way. This is a mysterious God, and he will be the one shaping the narrative from this point forward. Friends, maybe maybe you're here today, and really just this whole experience, this whole coming to church thing, is, is about you trying to manipulate and control God. You're here And if we dug real deep, here's what we'd find out. Your motivation and your prayers are all about trying to get God to do what you want him to do, the way you want him to do it, and in the time frame that you want it done. God, would you just do this in my kid's life? Would you just do this, you know, through this treatment that I'm going through? God, would you just do this with my finances? God, could you just lead and guide my wife, my husband, to start acting and stop acting a certain way? Like, God, can you just do your thing, the thing that I want you to do when I want you to do it? And and just to sort of get you on my side, look, God, I'm in church. Look, I I stopped cussing. Look, God, I've been reading my Bible. Look, God, I even gave some money. Do you see me putting it in the offering box? By the way, you can give online. We will take your manipulation money if you want to give it. I mean, someone's going to get it. You feel guilty. You're trying to, I mean, mean, we'll we'll take it, you know, cedarmill.com. But here, I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you, though, it won't work. 
You can't manipulate God that way. It's not how he works. Our God is a consuming fire. Do you know what that means? That means he wants all of you. He wants every inch of you. He wants you to surrender your entire life to him. He wants to call the shots. He wants to be fully and 100% in control. Church is not the place we come in order to get God to do what we want. It's a place to come and declare, God, here's my life. Now you do what you want. That's what we're doing here. Friends, that's the burning bush moment for Moses. Moses, are you finally ready to follow a God that you cannot manipulate and control? Are you ready to follow a God you can't explain? A God you don't even fully understand? Moses, are you ready to surrender your life and calling to the Lord of the universe who came down and can even defy the laws of physics? Are you ready to follow him? And and the real answer is not quite, at least for Moses. Moses is almost there, but we'll see next week. He's got a few more questions. He's got a few more things to work through with God. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, what's interesting about this story is that there's a repeated word here that shows up in both verses 3 and 4. And every commentator says this is significant. In verse 3, Moses says, I will go over. And then in verse four, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over, and that phrase go over, it literally means he turned aside. Moses turned aside. And then God saw that Moses turned aside. Friends, I believe God offers callings to people in this world who are willing to turn aside. In 1954, No one really knew his name. He was an average student at Morehouse. He attended theological school in Pennsylvania and then went to grad school in Boston. His friends said he dressed more for the professorate than the pastorate. But a church down in Montgomery, Alabama was persistent in their calling of him. Newly married, he and his young wife, Coretta, went to see the parsonage. They were unimpressed. They weren't too keen on living in the segregated South, and so they planned to stay for just a few years. But then something happened. Something happened when first Claudette Colvin and then Rosa Parks refused to give up their seats. And suddenly this young seminarian, this new 26-year-old pastor, was asked by all the other ministers in Montgomery to be the one to stand to be the one to stand in front of the cameras, to be the one to speak out, to be the one to stand up and lead. History tells us he was hesitant. He was hesitant to take this role. He did not feel ready. But in this moment, Martin Luther King Jr. had a decision to make. Would he turn aside? Would he turn aside from the plans he had for his life? Would he turn aside from comfort? Would he turn aside from an easy, predictable path towards one filled with resistance and hate and vitriol and imprisonment in order to follow God and find his calling in this world? 
Friends, that, that word turn aside, it describes a detour. That's another like, translation for this phrase. It's a detour. It's, it's not the path you predicted. It's not the path you wanted. It's not the path you were planning to walk down. There's a big road sign that says, turn aside, detour ahead. Friends, I believe God is still in the business of offering his people kingdom callings. I believe God is in the business right here, right now, in this church, with this church family, with these people, of doling out kingdom callings. And so the question today is this, how are we doing? How are we doing at turning aside? How are we doing at seeing and noticing injustice when God wants to speak to us about it? How are we doing at hearing the calling of God? Let me ask it another way to you today, friends. Is there a burning bush in your life over yonder and you just need to notice it? Man, I wish God would do the burning bush thing for me. That sounds amazing. I wish God would show up in my life the way he showed up in Moses' life. I wish God would call me and use me the way he used Martin King. I wish God would do something significant and lasting and eternal in and through my life in this world. Maybe there is. Maybe there's a burning bush in your life, friends, and you just need to notice it. You just need to be willing to take a detour. You just need to be willing to lay down your plans for his plan. And friends, and maybe the reality is that God's plans and callings in our lives, God's detours are scary. That like we said, they come with pharaohs, they come with resistance, they come with struggle. And so we wonder, do I have it in me to walk down that path and pursue a kingdom calling with God? Because you know what? My path feels safe. My path feels secure. My path feels predictable. I like the path my life is on. So God, if you could just offer a calling and put a burning bush right in the middle of my road, that'd be good, friends. That's not how God works. And so we have to ask the question, where do we get the courage to tackle God's kingdom callings in our lives in this world? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's in this meal that we'll share together right now. It's in this meal where we're reminded, as Moses will be next week, that the God who is bigger than every power in this world, even death goes with us into every calling that he gives us. That God is with us. That he walks with us. That it's not our strength, but it's his strength. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, Moses and Martin King, I'm pretty sure they were cooler than me. I'm pretty sure they were stronger than me. I'm pretty sure that those were extremely gifted, talented individuals and that I could never do anything for God like that. Let me tell you something about Moses. He was 80. He had one foot in the grave. Like I don't even know how he's walking up that mountain with those sheep. Martin Luther King, 26. He's a kid. He's a kid who finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. And God says, oh, I can work with that. 
Friends, do you understand how big your God is? It's not your strength. It's not your capabilities. It's not your power. It's not your intuition. It's not your intelligence. It's the power and strength and might and fury and relentless pursuit of righteousness that our God has. And he says, I'll go with you because there's not an enemy in this world that I can't take on. Even the enemy of death. Even when and if the worst thing were to happen, I've still got you. So friends, as we move to the tables this morning to, to get the elements, let this not simply be a religious activity. Let this not just be a moment of tradition, something we do here every week. As we move to the table to get the elements, to make this, this declaration of who our God is, let me ask you to ask God this morning. God, where is your calling in my life these days? Where are you asking me to see and notice and turn aside that I might make a difference for your kingdom in this world? Friends, take a minute, and when you're ready, the tables are open. Come, get your elements, take them back to your seats. We will receive them together in just a moment. The tables are open.